We are teleported like that of a grimacing nightmare to the autumn of 1888, the east end of London, walking down the streets in both fear and horror. A light rain splatters on the cobblestone on well-worn paths, with the flickering streetlights looming sparsely overhead. You quicken your pace through the shadows of the next light. A killer who hunted down prostitutes and mutilated them in the streets has become known as one of the most famous unsolved mysteries of all time. While it will most likely never be settled 100%, many speculate of who this Night Stalker really was. Tonight, we share a few versions and some new evidence just uncovered on a case that is 135 years old. Join us tonight as we try to uncover Jack the Ripper. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. And before we get started tonight, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners who reached out to us, Andy Manning. Uh, Andy writes, hey guys, I'm from Yorkshire, England. Just want to say, love your podcast. Keep up the great work and many thanks, Andy. So, hey Andy, we uh, are shouting at you across the pond, as they say. So we made our way across the pond. Yes, and tonight's episode with it being Jack the Ripper, Bill and I were talking and it's like, hey, this uh, this is a great place to give you a shout out, so. Thanks to all the listeners, but especially a shout out to Andy Manning. It's like Eric said, tonight we're going to talk about Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, as of today, is still technically unidentified. Correct. Now, in my notes, I do have here that there is a potential candidate based on modern DNA analysis, but we'll get to that. You have the end one, here. and I also have another one. So yeah. it, a lot of people Wait. are wanting to step yeah. forward, and which is ironic. It's like, hey, my family's the serial killer. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird, but. Of course. Jack the Ripper was active in the poor Whitechapel district of London in the fall of 1888. That spree of murders, and there are more murders there than those that directly attributed to Jack the Ripper are called the Whitechapel murders. And for a time, Jack the Ripper was referred to possibly by the name Leather Apron. Yes, so I kind of led I, to I some that. kind of an, I don't know if it's an intimidating name, but it was it struck fear at the time yeah it worked it worked but yeah i think it was because of so many of the jobs and stuff that was around there you know with like meat processing and delivery and you know that's it was semi-common for people to wear leather aprons but he typically attacked female prostitutes and would cut their throats before committing further mutilations to give you a little idea of the situation and the time frame and what was going on england in the mid-19th century was experiencing an influx of Irish immigrants, especially in the major cities, and that included the east end of London. Jewish refugees were also fleeing Russia and were settling into these same areas. So poor neighborhoods especially became incredibly overcrowded. And mixed melting pot for sure. Now Whitechapel, again, just like any other you know lower class neighborhood, became very, very overcrowded with approximately 80,000 people by 1888. Of course, when you have that many people in a lower class neighborhood, work and housing conditions declined and a significant lower class developed. Robbery, violence, and alcoholism were common, 
and poverty drove many women to prostitution. Now, as of October of 1888, London's Metropolitan Police estimated there were 62 brothels and 1,200 working prostitutes in Whitechapel at the time. Wow. And if Jack was targeting prostitutes, I mean, he had, had a target-rich environment. They also estimated there were roughly 8,500 people residing in the 233 common lodging houses every night. When you think of accommodations, a common lodging house is, uh, I mean, basically a little more than a room with a bunch of cots. Yeah, in it. it's definitely not a resort environment by any means. Yeah. Of course, economic issues that come in hand in hand with a, with a steady rise in social tensions. Uh, there was anti-Semitism, crime, nativism, and racism just rampant in the Whitechapel district especially. And Whitechapel itself became known as a notorious den of immorality. So, unfortunately, there was a large amount of violence against women in that part of London. And so that does add some uncertainty as to how many actual victims belong to Jack the Ripper. What are labeled the Whitechapel murders includes 11 murders between April 3rd, 1888 and February 1891. I guess London Metropolitan Police have a file, you know, that was labeled the Whitechapel murders, and it include all of those. There are five murders known as the Canonical Five, which are the actual murders that they say these are 100% Jack the Ripper. So there's there's still a lot of uncertainty <laughs> with, you know, again, when you go back 135 years and and don't get me wrong, I mean, they were recording stuff, the police and everything, but well, still the lines are smudged a bit. So I guess during the German bombing runs on London, the Blitz as a lot of these original records were lost. So makes sense. Makes I mean, perfectly yeah, good there's, sense. There's a potential, obviously, for there to be some sort of you know, we're gonna lose some information somewhere. Now of the canonical five, experts say that the common thread there is the deep slash wound to the throat, followed by extensive abdominal and genital mutilation, removal of internal organs and facial mutilations. Uh, those are all considered typical of the Ripper's MO. The first two murders in the Whitechapel murders are Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram. They are not typically considered part of the Ripper's victims. Those, those are not the canonical five. The canonical five Ripper victims are, and in order, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. The first of what is considered the canonical five uh, Ripper victims is Marianne Nichols, and her body was found about 3.40 a.m. on Friday, August 31st, 1888 in Buckshead Row in Whitechapel. The last time she had been seen alive was about an hour earlier by Mrs. Emily Holland, and she was sharing a bed with her at a common lodging house. And when I talk about the conditions of the lodging houses, I mean, that's they were sharing a bed at one of the lodging houses. Yeah, not just bathrooms so, or whatever, or yeah. rooms, but a bed. And, and she was last seen walking in the direction of Whitechapel Road. About 3.45 a.m., two men walking along Bucks Row saw what they thought was an abandoned tarp lying on the footpath. Uh, upon closer inspection, it was revealed to be Marianne's body in a pool of blood. The descriptions of the Ripper victims is going to be a little gruesome, so if you're turned off by that, I'm, I mean, we're not going to spell it out in detail, but it's still pretty rough. Uh, her throat was slashed with two deep cuts. Her vagina was stabbed twice. The lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by deep cuts, causing her bowels to protrude, and there were several other cuts inflicted upon her abdomen with the same knife. Mm. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty gruesome. I'm going to jump in here because my main focus tonight uh, happens to be around this Mary Ann, or some have it referred to as Polly Nichols. And this is a relatively new theory that actually the Smithsonian uh, magazine has published some articles on. 
And I just kind of picked up with that story and, and it really intrigued me. So if you will indulge me here, we're going to go back and talk a little bit more about uh, Marianne slash Polly Nichols. As Bill said, it was August 31st, 1888 there on Bucks Row. Uh, I have sometime between 3.15 and 3.45 a.m. I believe Bill said 3.40, so yeah. that's right on key. Uh, now, Bucks Row was a long, narrow street in London, uh, one that overlooked by both sides with tall terraced housings, but with only a few street lamps. They were kind of salt and peppered here and there. However, with this design of housing, there was really no alleyways or quick escape routes, meaning that you would literally have to come in from one side of the block and make it through to the other side before you would have a cross street. As fate would have it, police constable passed by this exact area just 15 minutes of what we are assuming before the murder, with nothing out of the ordinary reported in his walkthrough patrol report. Now, there were also several other night watchmen in adjacent streets, within earshot even, um, but yet no one had heard anything. The police constables uh, passing in this area were commonly, I mean, they're on a walking path. They're just out doing their job. But about every 30 minutes would go by this particular spot. And it seemed quite impossible for the killer to escape in a period of finding a target, murdering them, mutilating them, and then to escape in a window of 30 minutes, or one might think. And, and that may be part of the reason why at the time they believe he had to be a doctor or someone who was a professional butcher or something like that. Their, their suspect list included people whose job it was to dismember bodies, basically. Yeah, because, I mean, you're going to possibly have blood and stuff all over you. I mean, that, that takes a lot of time for the cleanup and, and everything, or at least to just get out, of, get out of the area. Now, according to the oldest, and I dare say original, old newspaper accounts, police constable by the name of Neil found a body at approximately 345. And that was it until the next day. I mean, that's, that was all that was in the report. Now, when the newspaper printed an interview with a citizen as that news came out in Whitechapel, a man came forward by the name of Robert Paul stating he was actually the one that found the body before the police constable did. And when he did come across the body, there was another man standing over that said body. He described walking up the streets of Buck Row, and as he approached, there was this man that was knelt at first and then stood directly over what he later learned to be the body of Marianne slash Polly Nichols. The unknown man looked up at him and started walking directly towards him, leaving this lady laying on the street. Now the two then kind of turned and returned back to the body, and the two seemed to speculate if the woman was dead or possibly just drunk and passed out at this point. Mr. Robert Pauls stated that she's probably just passed out. Let's just move her up against the building and set her up uh, to kind of help her. Now, the unknown man at the same time said he thought that would be a horrible idea and actually kind of argued with Robert Pauls, stating if there was something wrong with her, he didn't think the police would want her moved. And for whatever reason, the two didn't want to be connected with any crime, <laughs> obviously. Now, this mystery man then came forward to the police the following day as Robert Paul's story came out in the newspaper. Because Robert Paul here has announced there was two of us that actually found the body before the police constable. So the mystery man does come forward. Uh, he comes directly to the police the following day, and he gives his name as Charles Allen Cross, a car man, which in layman's terms at that time is a, essentially a delivery man. Now, he admitted to the police he was actually the first person to find the body, not even Robert Paul. 
So they've kind of got this argument about who found this poor lady. Journalist Krister Holgram thought this was very odd for a witness not to come forward. Now, Krister Holgram is a current living in this time frame retired policeman, I believe. He has background with all of this, and this is just something that fascinated him, the whole story of Jack the Ripper. So much of what I am attributing to is due to the work of Christopher Holgram. I want to definitely give him the credit who got the story published with the Smithsonian that I mentioned. He thought this was a very odd for a witness not to come freely forward for several days after the murder. So automatically, he just kind of has a little blip on his radar. Now, this mystery man, Charles Cross, had given his address to the police as 22 Doveton Street, right there in Whitechapel. However, the official record, as uh, Christopher Holgram started to research, he found the police didn't follow up on that, but he did. And a lot of those details at the time, if there were so many, as Bill said, so many people that were speculated, some of them doctors, some of them just, you know, butchers, if you will, in, in the meat market industry. I think they had their hands full, so to speak. So by this guy coming forward, he kind of threw the police off. Yeah, he was a couple days late, but, you know, here I am. Here's my name. Here's my address. Yeah, I found him. You know, he was, he seemed to be quite forward. So it was kind of dismissed. As Christopher Holgram continued to kind of research this, that housing area and that address, 22 Doveton Street in Whitechapel, becomes more and more important. The journalist, Christopher Holgram, actually believes that this gentleman that came forward was none other than Jack the Ripper, who was hiding in plain sight amongst the police. Now, going back to that fateful night, August 31st, we pick up with the story where the two men, Robert Paul and the mystery man, now identified as Charles Cross, the name he gave the police, leave the body of Marianne, Polly Nichols, and still wanting to move the women, they're kind of arguing, but finally... They, they agree with each other that they just need to go find the police constable that they know, you know, are currently walking in the area and go get help. As fate would have it, they would run into, a few blocks away, a police constable, George Misen. However, it was Charles Cross that ran to meet the police constable first, leaving his buddy, Robert Paul, kind of back in the dust. So I can imagine these two men walking up. It's dark. They see a police constable. This mystery man just takes off running towards the constable first. So we're not real sure what exactly was told that Robert Paul missed out on. Well, first off, in the inquest, the PC Misen, Police Constable Misen, confirms the story slightly different as they went back and researched his own police files. He says Cross told him two key things that he wrote down. Number one, there was a woman lying on the ground in Bucks Row. Number two, There was another police constable there who had sent these two men to seek out help. Now, obviously, there was no other police constable back there. So this part of the story was being fabricated. Again, a little blip on the radar with Christopher Holgram as he was trying to come across. It seems he was lying. Now, it is agreed that at this early stage, it was unclear if the woman was dead or simply drunk and passed out. Even in the worst instance, a death is obviously a very serious ordeal. Still, it seemed to be played down a bit when PC Misen had two men that seemingly came to hunt him down, asking for help, bringing attention to the scenario, and then be told that there was already another police constable on the site. Well, Misen, of course, still had to go get this, but with another police constable on site, I'm sure he didn't like race and run there. He was going to add aid and to help. 
it was a very clever, calculated risk that paid off, as fate would have it, big time. For as luck would have it, the police constable originally who reported it in the newspaper article, Police Constable Neal, has indeed made his rounds back around just missing the two men leaving the scene and did in fact discover the body of Polly Nichols lying on the street, who at this time the police constable described as laying in a thick, large pool of blood. He was approached by the second police constable, Misen, that the two gentlemen had sought out to go find help. And when he arrived, here's the police constable (laughs) that the guy had just lied to him about. Talk about a lucky break. The police uh, spoke, stating that all of this had taken place in a matter of perhaps 15 minutes, you know, matching up their walking routes and everything. Already at this time, there was a large pool of thick blood where the neck had been slashed from ear to ear, literally to the spine. So when Robert Paul approached the mystery man, who identified himself as Charles Cross, the murder must have literally just happened. There was no blood signs. There was nothing at this point in time. This seemed plausible why Cross, now assuming he was possibly Jack the Ripper, did not want to move the body to reveal the blood that would be pooling under that body and obviously give out that she couldn't possibly be drunk. She was, in fact, dead. Because he had just literally slit her throat and was interrupted by Robert Paul, who happened to come down the same street. So we have Charles Cross here, surely thinking he had played this off perfectly and again escaped the eyes of the police. Now that was until Robert Paul came forward stating that he and another man had actually first discovered the body rather than the police, and it flushed him out. And he had to come up, basically to face the music, so to speak, to try to get control, to get ahead of this before the police constables had a chance to review all the statements and the stories and possibly track him down. But when he did come forward, he gave the coroner a false name, the name of Charles Cross that I had mentioned, which would have been, by the way, under oath, and adds even more suspicion to him. But again, with a little luck, and because he did come forward, that escaped the police search entirely, fading into the shadows. That is, until a group of amateur sleuths in the year 2005 stumbled across this man and decided, why not? Let's dig a little further. They first discovered the address in which Charles Allen Cross had gave, that 22 Dovetown Street in Whitechapel. Now, while that name did not appear... Charles Allen Lechmere did exist at that address. This man was listed as the head of the family and shared both first and middle names. Could that be a coincidence? The amateur sleuths dug deeper and found their break in an 1861 census record when they found the Charles Allen Lechmere was recorded with a surname of Cross at being age 12 the name of his stepfather at the time, Thomas Cross. At the time, they found over a hundred other documents making this connection between the Cross and Lechmere names. So we can surely assume, in fact, Charles Allen Cross was, in fact, the same now adult man portraying himself. Charlie Allen Lechmere is Charles Allen Cross. He intentionally lied to P.C. Meisen that night running ahead of Robert Paul to tell his story first. He then intentionally, under oath, gave a false name of Cross rather than Lickmere. He was then literally the first person to have discovered the body, that of Marianne Polly Nichols. But did he lie about more? 
Journalist Christopher Holgram wanted to find out now more than ever. So, Charles Lechmere lived in the neighborhood. Holgram retraced his route to work, in fact, which took him right past this exact spot on Bucks Row. Lechmere claims to the police at that time to have left his house for work at approximately 3.30 a.m. When retraced, it only takes seven minutes to arrive to the murder site from his home. Paul states he also left his house for work about 3.30, this is the other gentleman, and found Lechmere at the body 15 minutes later at approximately 3.45. So we're missing a small window of time of about eight minutes. Lechmere also claims he was never alone with the body, stating that Paul approached him just as he arrived to the body. So here we have another inconsistency of that eight minutes. A lot can be done in eight minutes, folks, especially in the shadows of a dimly lit street at night. And if you have pre-thought meditation and a game plan, a coroner specialist that works with murder cases with the police was brought in to examine the post-mortem records. He states, first off, there was bruising along the side of the left cheek and the right side of the neck. This is very similar to what that of what you would find in strangulation. Then the incision to the neck and throat slashed all the tissue right down hitting the vertebrae. So if she was not already dead by strangulation, obviously this type of injury to her throat would have undoubtedly killed her. But the murder didn't stop there. There was a total of 12 injuries, several other stab wounds, like some of the other Jack the Ripper cases that would go on. There were no removal of organs or tissue at the time, but it is deemed the murder took place as little as in two minutes. And remember, we have a window of eight minutes that's unaccounted for. And perhaps he just didn't get finished with his work. But here it is where the first concerning question comes to play. If Lechmere was in fact the murderer and slashed and cut the victim's throat, why was he not covered in blood? He met Paul just moments later and police constable for Pete's sake, just about 15 minutes after that, leaving the scene. Yet no one remembers blood on him. Well, the coronary specialist says that's easily explained. He believes the strangulation took place first. If there is no heartbeat, there is no blood pressure. There is no pump that would push the blood out, spewing, as we often see in the Hollywood slasher movies. But if there was no pressure, it simply would just drain and ooze out of the body. So Lechmere could have been totally free of blood, and it would take several minutes for that blood to start to drain out and then pool into the contours of the neck and under the dress and the shoulders there of Polly. Now, at the time in history, boots and shoes had hard soles. So walking on a cobblestone hard street at the time of night, being very quiet, Lechmere most likely would have been alerted to anyone, even coming close before he could see them. So the whole story there doesn't also make sense that he just kind of almost surprised him as he walked up on him. Then the whole deal about not moving the body. Well, he had positioned the dress and the attire so that it would catch any blood, buying him the especially needed few moments to try to get this gentleman away from the body and again throw the cops off. If you put all this in a jury today, Lechmere would have had a very hard time not being attributed with the murders to him on this site. Now, see, I would argue there's a lot of speculation there. Please do. I mean, you're talking about what he might have done, and, and there's no witness. There, there's nobody to say any. I mean, uh, you know, modern legal, you innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say a, a competent lawyer could absolutely get him off of, because there's no witnesses. There's no blood on him. And that's no, the problem. You know, there's never any witnesses yeah. left. But as they say, there's more. <laughs> 
As he continued to research this, Lechmere, every one of the acclaimed for sure five murders, Lechmere had a reason to be at each one of those sites and was very familiar. As a matter of fact, he grew up as an orphan in the area. Some of the other sites of the murders took place on the same streets he lived as an orphan or as he was later adopted. The two murders that took place kind of south area of the main concentration was where Lechmere's mother actually lived with his sister and would often go to visit. So again, that still speculation, but adds a little bit more cloudiness but, to it. But everything. what's the expression correlation is not causation? Just because he would have a reason to be there doesn't mean he was. That is true. Or doesn't mean, again, maybe he was there and it's just coincidence. The most unlucky <laughs> guy, possibly. But I, I totally get what you're saying. I like this type of, of communication back and forth because, again, <laughs> we've got a 135-year-old murder. Let's face it, if it was easy to solve, it would have already been solved. Had this been solved, we wouldn't be talking about it today. It wouldn't have been this glorious story of gore and blood. <laughs> and, and blown out of proportion as it is. Oh, my gosh. He's become. I, as I can, I can see that you and I have different notes here on some of this stuff. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next of the canonical five happens one week later on Saturday, September 8th, 1885, when Annie Chapman's body is found at about 6 a.m. Now, her body is found near the steps of the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Now, as per the, the Ripper's MO, Annie's throat is severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen has been entirely cut open with a section of flesh from her stomach placed upon her left shoulder. Yeah, I read that. Uh, Another section of skin and flesh, plus her small intestines were removed, and that was placed above her right shoulder. And the autopsy also revealed her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina were missing. At the inquest into Chapman's murder, an associate, Elizabeth Long, said she had seen Chapman standing outside 29 Hanbury Street about 5.30 a.m. in the company of a dark-haired man who had been wearing a brown deerstalker hat and a dark overcoat of a shabby, genteel appearance. Now, she claimed that she heard the man ask Chapman, will you? And Chapman replied, yes. And that was the last time anybody had seen her. Now, the shabby genteel, I think. That's an interesting terminology, it's, description. It, well, I mean, it's kind of contradictory, isn't it? It's, yeah. He's dressed nice, but he looks rough, you know. Yeah. And I think that happens quite a bit when, when people say they saw somebody in the company. They, they were a rough-looking character, but they were also dressed nice. It, it's, he was a nice fellow. He just looks gruff. <laughs> now, let me ask you um, you're talking here with Annie Chapman, and this seems to be the first point I, I think we would agree that organs were removed, at least yeah. in these cases. In my research, not all those body parts were accounted for. Not always, no. So then that opens up a speculation of what was he doing with these? Is he a serial killer that's keepsakes? Well, I was gonna say, you know? Pretty often serial killers do keep uh, souvenirs. If you will, I don't know. That's yeah. I, don't, I don't know. That's the term you want to use. It, but, it works for what we're trying to describe. But, but a lot of them do because, again, each murder is a significant event for them. And of course, you know, I'm yeah. I can go back to you know TV show Dexter where he collected the slides oh, of blood. Yeah. But it seems to be pretty common for serial killers to keep something, a trophy, if you well, will. There's some speculation because Jack the Ripper, by many, is considered to have been involved in the meat or butchery that possibly cannibalism or he served or mixed that meat with other meat, which 
when you thought a case like this just couldn't get any more bizarre and weird, again, it's all speculation. And this case is full of speculation for 135 years, but uh, how gross. Yeah. How gross. In the early morning hours of Sunday, September 30th, 1888, we have what is now known as the double event. Uh, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were killed. Stride's body was discovered about 1 a.m. off Burner Street in Whitechapel. Cause of death was apparently a single incision measuring six inches across the neck that had severed her carotid artery and trachea before ending beneath her right jaw. Absence of any further mutilation to her body led to a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether or not this was actually a ripper murder. But some believe that maybe he was interrupted. Again, these streets were frequently traveled. Right. As in my story, it seemed to be like with the police constables, it was their task like every yeah. 30 minutes to go around every area. Now, several witnesses informed police that they had seen Stride in the company of a man close to Burner Street on the evening of September 29th and in the early hours of the 30th, but gave differing descriptions. Some said he was fair. Others said he was dark. Some said he was shabbily dressed. Others said he was well-dressed. Again, conflicting information here. Now, Catherine Eddowes' body was found in a corner of Mitre Square in the city of London 45 minutes after the body of Elizabeth Stride was found. Her throat was severed from ear to ear. Her abdomen ripped open by a long, jagged wound. Her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder. A section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and her left arm. Mm. Her left kidney and the major part of her uterus had been removed. And her face had been disfigured. Her nose severed. Her cheeks slashed. Cuts vertically through each eyelid. A triangular cut, which pointed towards her eye, carved upon either cheek. And a section of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. What the heck is going on in this guy's mind? Well, it gets a little worse every time, it seems like. Local cigarette salesman Joseph Lond passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder and described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Eddowes. Now, his companions could or would not confirm this description. A piece of Eddowes' bloody apron was found at the entrance to a tenement on Goulston Street, Whitechapel, about 2.55 a.m., with a chalk inscription upon the wall directly above the piece of apron that read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Wow. So, now, again, sounds like maybe somebody's trying to point a finger here, but it's unclear whether this graffiti was written by the murderer or was just simply there at the time, because apparently that kind of graffiti was pretty commonplace in Whitechapel at the time. And so finally, on Friday, November 9th, 1888, we have what is considered the last of the canonical five, which is Mary Jane Kelly. She was discovered lying on the bed of, in the room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street, Spitalfields, at 10.45 a.m. Her face had been, quote, hacked beyond all recognition. Her throat severed down to the spine, abdomen almost emptied of its organs, uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head, other viscera from the body placed beside her foot about the bed, and sections of her abdomen and thighs upon a bedside table. And her heart was missing from the crime scene. Now, obviously, this is the first murder that took place, not on the streets, but actually in her room. So this gave the serial killer the most opportune location, protection, got to spend as much time as he wanted, probably. And boy, does it show. Now, ashes found in the fireplace suggest her murder had burned several items to illuminate the room as he murdered her. And that's the end of the canonical five. Those five victims are the ones that are directly attributed to Jack the Ripper. They all share the same MO. They're the most similar in, in you know, process. And, I mean, obviously, when you describe them, you know, the throat being slashed, organs and, and such removed. Now, each of the canonical five was perpetrated at night 
on or close to a weekend, either at the end of the month or a week or so after, mutilations became increasingly severe as the murders continued, with the exception of Stride, which they believe that that murder was interrupted. Historically, the belief is that these murders were committed by the same perpetrator, and that is derived from documents of the time which link them together. And in 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, Assistant Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and head of the Criminal Investigation Department, wrote a report that stated, the Whitechapel murder had five victims, and five victims only. So while we have this whole series of murders that happened in Whitechapel, which still continue after this, they themselves believed that Jack the Ripper had only killed these five ladies. And you have to consider that took place between August of 1888 and Mary Kelly the last was November of, of yeah. 1888. We're talking just a few months. I mean, wow. No, I just, I just wanted to say, and of course, one of the biggest mysteries of all of this is, you know, where did this guy come from? What started it? And then as quickly as it started, it ended. Now, to your, to your point, Bill's point, there were other murders. Let's face it. I mean, imagine like New York City down, I mean, the, the bad part of New York City. There's going to be murders. Yeah. But as you said, these five for sure are attributed to him. But why did they stop all of a sudden? You know, how did they start? Who was he? Why did it stop? Was he killed? Was he arrested for something yeah, else? Did he move was, on to another it was area? He, was, he either died, was imprisoned, institutionalized, or left the country, which leaving the country comes up later on in the story for me. So Now, I will add in here, my main focus point was the Charles Allen Lechmere, and I'm going to shoot a few holes into my own theory here <laughs> because that's what we do here. Charles Allen Lechmere, if you want to believe that story as him being the one, actually went on to live a ripe old age. Until the 1920s, he made a decent living and even saved up enough money in his ripe old age to have one professional photo taken, possibly the only known photo of what some might say is Jack the Ripper, if you believe that speculation. I might also add, in a weird freakish way, he bears a striking resemblance to old man Marley in uh, the movie Home Alone, (laughs) the old creepy guy that lives next door in the first movie almost a spitting image. I mean, it is creepy. Now, with 135 years behind us, it's very unlikely there will be that definitive proof. But as we were saying, why did it stop? Well, I'm shooting holes in my own theory here. He obviously was still around and he stayed in the area. So do you think a serial killer can just flip the switch off and just not kill anymore? Most would argue no, but. Well, yeah, it was a, you know, leopard can't change his spots. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I believe but, yeah. you have uh, your own theory. Well, that- b- before we, we talk about who could potentially be the Ripper, I do want to cover the rest of the Whitechapel murders. Again, Mary Jane Kelly was considered the last of the Ripper victims, but there were an additional uh, four murders even after that. Those of Rose Milet, Alice McKenzie, the Pension Street Torso, and Francis Coles. And I can, I'll just go through these pretty quickly because, again, even the MO, once once... I read to you the email. You'll see that they don't really match the Ripper crimes. Uh, December 20th, 1888, Rose Milet was found strangled in Clark's Yard, High Street, Poplar. No signs of a struggle, but markings left by a cord on one side of her neck suggest she had been strangled. So you're missing the, the slash throat and the body mutilation. Shortly after midnight on July 17th, 1889, Alice McKenzie is murdered in Castle Alley, Whitechapel, suffered two stab wounds to her neck where her left carotid artery had been severed. Several minor bruises and cuts found along the body. She had a seven-inch-long wound extending from her left breast to her navel, and 
because of the similarity to earlier murders, some suggest this, that maybe somebody was trying to copy the Ripper's M.O. here. Again, semi-common. Yeah. September 10th, 1889, the Pension Street torso is discovered beneath a railway arch in Pension Street, Whitechapel, a decomposing, headless, legless torso of an unidentified woman between ages 30 and 40. Uh, she had bruising on, the, on her back, her hip, and her arm to indicate she had been extensively beaten before her death. The abdomen was extensively mutilated, although no genital mutilation was to be found, and she appeared to have been killed about a day prior to discovery. So again, the arms and legs, that's different from the Ripper. Mm-hmm. February 13th, 1891, 2.15 a.m., Police Constable Ernest Thompson finds 25-year-old prostitute Frances Coles lying beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens, Whitechapel. Her throat had been deeply cut, but her body was not mutilated. And some believe that potentially someone had interrupted this murder. Uh, she was still alive, though she died before any help could arrive. Now, a James Thomas Sadler had earlier been seen drinking with Coles, and the two are known to have been arguing about three hours before her death. So he seems like a pretty good suspect for that one. Uh, he was arrested and charged with her murder. And some at the time even labeled him as the Ripper because, you know, the, these murders were so similar. Uh, but he was later let go for lack of evidence. Now, there are still potentially other victims linked to the Ripper. So the, this can, goes on. This is in addition to the Whitechapel murders. 38-year-old widow Annie Millwood was admitted to Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary with numerous stab wounds on her legs and lower torso on February 25th, 1888. She informed the staff she'd been attacked by a man with a knife, but she didn't know who he was. Uh, she was later discharged, and then died, but died from apparent natural causes on the 31st of March, so about a month later. It was later theorized that she could have been the Ripper's first victim, potentially, but this one's not definitively linked to the Ripper. Uh, another potential early victim was Ada Wilson. She survived being stabbed twice in the neck on the doorstep of her home on March 28, 1888. Another possible victim, Annie Farmer, stayed at the same lodging house as Martha Tabram, one of the f- two first Whitechapel murders. She was attacked on November 21, 1888, and received a superficial cut to her throat. An unknown man with blood on his mouth and hands had run out of the lodging house shouting, Look what she's done! before two witnesses heard her scream. Her wound was light, and some say it was possibly self-inflicted. So Then you have the Whitehall Mystery, which was the name used to label the discovery of a headless torso of a woman on October 2nd, 1888, in the basement of the new Metropolitan Police headquarters being built in Whitehall. Oh my gosh. Wow. The arm and shoulder belonging to the body were discovered floating in the River Thames near Pimlico on September 11th, and her left leg was discovered buried near where the torso was found on October 17th. The other limbs and the head were never recovered, and the body was never identified. The mutilations were similar to those of the Pension Street torso, where the legs and head were severed, but not the arms. On December 29, 1888, the body of seven-year-old John Gill was found in a stable block in Manningham, Bedford. He had been missing since the December 27th. The legs had been severed, the abdomen opened, the intestines partly pulled out, the heart and one ear were removed. Of course, similarities to the Ripper murders led the press to, to speculate that the Ripper had killed him as well. Of course, him being, you know, a young boy doesn't fit the Ripper's M.O. No, not at all. And on April 24th, 1891, Carrie Brown was strangled with clothing, then mutilated with a knife in New York City. It's a rough neighborhood. Well, this is New York City. Oh, this, this, you can jump to America now. Yeah. The body was found with a large tear through the groin area, superficial cuts on her legs and back. 
No organs were removed from the scene, though an ovary was found upon the bed. Uh, either purposely removed or unintentionally dislodged. I don't know how you accidentally, accidentally do that. Accidentally Yeah, okay. At the time, the murder was compared to those of the Whitechapel murders, but the police eventually ruled out any connection. Like I said earlier, the vast majority of the City of London police files relating to this investigation were destroyed during the Blitz. Uh, surviving files give a detailed view of the investigative procedures of the time, where a large team of policemen conducted house-to-house inquiries throughout all of Whitechapel. Forensic material was collected and examined. Suspects were identified and either examined more closely or eliminated as you know evidence came forward. There were more than 2,000 people interviewed. Upwards of 300 were investigated. 80 were eventually detained. Butchers, slaughterers, surgeons, physicians were suspected because of the method used. Uh, a report from the time confirms that 76 butchers and slaughterers were visited and that the investigation included all of their employees for the last six months. I mean, police really poured a lot of effort into trying to figure out and went to people with experience in butchering bodies. Now, at the end of October, police surgeon Thomas Bond was asked for his opinion uh, on the extent of the murder's surgical skill and knowledge. This opinion on the Whitechapel murder is the earliest surviving offender profile before it became a thing that we, we do, which we do now. I, there's an entire TV show about it. But uh, Bond's assessment was based uh, on his examination of the bodies and mostly on that of the most extensively mutilated victim and also of the post-mortem notes from the four previous murders. He wrote, quote, All five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appear to have been cut from left to right. In the last case, owing to the extensive mutilation, it is impossible to say in what direction the fatal cut was made but arterial blood was found on the wall in splashes close to where the woman's head must have been lying. All the circumstances surrounding the murders lead me to form the opinion that the women must have been lying down when murdered, and in every case, the throat was cut first. Now, in he, the earlier ones, they, it seemed like the strangulation came first, yeah. and then the mutilation came yeah. afterwards for that lack of blood splatter yeah. we were talking. Now, Bond was strongly opposed to the idea that the murderer possessed any kind of scientific or anatomical knowledge or even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer. He was of the opinion the killer must have been a man of solitary habits subject to, quote, periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, uh, with the character of the mutilations possibly indicating a uh, hypersexuality, which I, I had to look up what they meant by that exactly, but basically uh, nymphomania, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know. It, Love to have sex. Yeah. Uh, he also said that the homicidal impulse may have developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or that religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. So, Well, and a lot would speculate, too, it kind of goes in conjunction with that. The majority, if not all, of the true Jack the Ripper murders seem to be with prostitutes. And, you know, as you said, profiling and stuff as it is today, that would most experts would say stems back to an issue could be a mommy issue or could be that they are an orphan and they did not have a mother. So the attention to the sexual organs and the, those, the prostitutes and rejection, rejection. Possibly. Yep. That's another one. But again, you have to wonder, you know, depending on if they were strangled first or cut first with the blood splatters, we have a lot of people that wear the leather aprons and do that type of work. In the scenario that I that I gave, the man was a delivery man, but he also generally delivered meats. That type of atmosphere at, at that point in history, they had areas for these men to bathe at work. 
because it was so common for them to be covered with blood head to toe. So you could easily blend in, even if you were covered with blood, just walk right in your place of employment and blend in. I mean, there's butchers and meat and stuff being delivered and blood all over you and nobody would think anything about it and give you a chance to to get cleaned up even before you had to walk back home. So during the Whitechapel murders, police, newspapers, and others received hundreds of letters regarding the case. Some were well-intentioned people trying to offer advice, trying to give ideas of who might potentially be the murderer. The vast majority were either hoaxes or completely useless. Hundreds of letters claim to have been written by the Ripper himself, but there are three that are of particular interest to the case. You have the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. I'm familiar with the From Hell letter. Yeah. The Dear Boss letter was dated September 25th and was received by the Central News Agency and was forwarded to Scotland Yard on the 29th. At first, they thought it was a hoax. However, when Eddowes' body was found three days after the letter's postmark, with a section of ear cut from her body, the author's promise to clip the lady's ears off gained attention. The name Jack the Ripper was also first used in this letter by the author, and it gained worldwide notoriety after publication. So I'm going to go ahead and read the letter here. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The last job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work and then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Also... <laughs> Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely kind of a strange message. In your face. So then you have the Saucy Jackie postcard, which was postmarked October 1st, 1888, and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. The handwriting was similar to the Dear Boss letter, and it mentioned the canonical murders committed on September 30th. Uh, when the author refers to them by the writing of the double event this time. And I don't have the full text of that one. And then you have the From Hell letter. Yes. And this letter was received by George Lusk, leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, on October 16th, 1888. Now, we didn't really talk about the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, but it was sort of a vigilante group that was assembled to try to deal with Jack the Ripper and, and, and all that. The police can't so, get the job done, so we're yeah. going to get it done. Uh, the handwriting and style is unlike that of the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard, but it came in a small box which also contained half a human kidney preserved in ethanol. Well, there's that. Well, and one of the bodies, I believe, was missing a kidney. Missing a kidney, yeah. Uh, the writer claimed that he fried and ate the missing half. Mm-hmm. Touched now, upon that. There is also disagreement about the kidney. Some say it belongs to Eddowes, while others argue it was a joke. And then the, the From Hell letter is a little bit shorter. And again... When you read it, it definitely doesn't seem like it's written by the same guy who wrote the Dear Boss, Dear Boss letter. letter yeah. From hell, Mr. Lusk sore. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you to other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice, N-I-S-E. I may send you the bloody knife, with no E, that took it out. 
if you only wait, W-A-T-E, a while with no E, longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. Seems like it was written by someone uneducated. Very uneducated, yeah. Or maybe somebody who was drunk and wrote the way they, you know. <laughs> now, for my potential perpetrator here, in 2019, they, they may have potentially figured out who it was. A DNA forensic investigation published by two British researchers identified Aaron Kosminski, who was a suspect at the time, a 23-year-old Polish barber, as the likely killer. And again, he was a suspect at the time. He was one of the prime suspects at the time. Semen and bloodstains on a shawl found near the body of Catherine Eddowes, the fourth victim, were tested, and the DNA was found to match that of Kosminski when compared against samples of his living descendants. They also compared them against those of Eddowes' living descendants. I believe it's mitochondrial DNA, which is passed on by the mother's Mother's side side. of the family. Yes. But according to their testing here, Kosminski seemed to be the the number one suspect, and he also seemingly vanished after the canonical five. So, I mean, that that was the guy after, you know, reading that we'd done some DNA. Fair play here. You you helped shoot holes in mine, so I'm going to help shoot holes in yours. I remember when all that took place and and i actually got very excited about it you know like a lot of people was like oh my gosh we've got the we've got a possibility here in my research for this podcast i came across that in the police files for that victim there was no mention of a, a scarf or a shawl but again to be fair a lot of those files were damaged Bart, lost destroyed damaged, yeah 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 so again the police record is incomplete so. right right so I'm right, Eric, and you're wrong. Okay. Well, I will accept <laughs> it on this podcast. But yet, Not really. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's fair to say if there's no record of it, but it's also, you know, a lot of those records were damaged and destroyed over the years. Again, you're talking about a hundred plus year old cold case, so I came across and I, I don't have all the details here, but just to kind of prove what Bill and I are jokingly arguing about, there was another here in I want to say it was ninety mid nineteen nineties, let's say. Uh, it's maybe the late nineteen nineties. There was a supposed diary that came forth through somebody that presented it, lost, abandoned, they found it, and they believed it was the diary of Jack the Ripper. It wasn't like spelled out exactly, but it was like the Ripper remembered notes or something, you know? And immediately everybody's like, this is total hoax. This is just, <laughs> this is so weird. So they tested the paper and the ink. And it was from that time frame. And then everybody was like, whoa, there could be something here. And again, I don't have all the details, but it was kind of written to that point of the letter from hell. The person did not know how to spell well, how to, you know, communicate right well. And if you remember the, the, the one physician's assessment was that he didn't consider him to be an educated man. Correct. So, well, then... We come forward like another two to three years that the story kind of dies off. There was a lot of new information that was being presented that either, as we have said, maybe the police files were lost or whatever, but it was like, wow, this, this is an unknown details that took place at, at these different ones. The guy who discovered it then comes forward and, and he owned an antique bookshop and he and his wife thought it would be fun and they purchased period paper and ink and painstakingly created this. And I mean, this is their own words. They came forward and it's like, look, we did it as like a a prank on like one of the anniversaries or something. And we didn't know it was going to like take off like this. Now we feel bad. Yeah, we made that. We made that. (laughs) But I mean, to the point of 
in the nineties, going back and somehow finding the, the parchment that matched and the ink that matched. And I mean, so it passed all the flying scientific tests, but that kind of crap is just what happens that one, I guess it keeps the, the lore and the legend alive, but it just muddies the water for anybody else trying to really figure out what's going on. People just trying to get their 15 minutes of fame one way or the other. I mean, they may not have been recognized, you know, I'm sure their hope was not to, you know, the, that that item would get famous, but, you know, they wouldn't be found out. And then, you know, at a certain point, realize, oh, we better say something. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, and again, it, just the fascination with this case that we've never really, you know, even to this day, no matter how much evidence someone might have, I mean, it is still an unsolved murder. Yes. Or unsolved series of murders. Yeah. All right. So now it's time for headlines. I think Eric and I both had the same headline, unfortunately. We are so much alike so. in thinking we, <laughs> we picked the same, because again, we don't get together and compare notes. That's part of the fun and, you know, the, the camaraderie here. But uh, Bill, well, take it away. So from, the, from newspress.com, February 24th, 2023, the headline is, Was serial killer H.H. Holmes also Jack the Ripper? His relative makes a case in Fort Myers. Which is just a drop of shameless advertising. Go back to our episode yeah. number 47, where we talk about serial killer and con man H.H. H. Holmes of Chicago. Jeff Mudgett was having a nice family dinner one day with his family. Well, I guess, who else would you have a family dinner with? I didn't need to say that. <laughs> when he learned a shocking truth about his family, H.H. H. Holmes, infamous con man and serial killer, was his great-great-grandfather. Now, this seed took root in his, his imagination, and, and he needed to learn more. He wanted to know more. And so Mudgett began to look into his evil ancestry in H.H. H. Holmes, uh, whose real name was Herman Webster Mudgett. Mm-hmm. And his research led to a startling discovery, a handwriting analysis that he says proves that H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper were the same person. And I will say, obviously— we both picked that as our headline, so both of us feel this has some yeah <laughs> some, some merit here. So he goes on to explore the topic in depth. He did a TED Talk on Holmes being Jack the Ripper. In 2017, he did a documentary series called American Ripper with the History Channel. Mm-hmm. 2011, his book Bloodstains. Just over a month ago, he did a, a two-day show at the Fort Myers Theater, about an 80-minute deal where he, he presented his case in, in front of an audience. Now, Mudgett says literally millions of people in this country are fascinated with the man and the story. Now, he himself is a former attorney, and, and he, was, he looked forward to his visit to Fort Myers and to present his argument to the audience. Uh, in his words, quote, I'm going to treat the audience as my jury, he says, and we're going to have them ask questions at the end of the show about their doubts and about their disagreements and any debates they want to have. I'm looking forward to that. Now, this show was March 3rd and 4th at the Fort Myers Theater, so, you know, just over a month ago. Yeah. Now, he has met with some resistance. Any author that writes a book about Jack the Ripper is going to get attacked, but none of them have had a piece of evidence like I have. I don't think it's been given a fair opportunity yet. Now, when he started writing about his great-great-grandfather, he was approached by some investigators who had already theorized that Holmes was possibly Jack the Ripper. They based this on some handwriting comparisons between the Dear Boss letter and some of Holmes' correspondence. And in their expert opinions, they'd received a direct match, not just something similar, but, but like directly. Mudgett went on to contact scientists at the University of Buffalo, and they agreed to run a comparison between the Dear Boss and Holmes's handwriting. 
And they came up with what he calls amazing numbers that he presented at his theater show. So we know Holmes was a serial killer. We know he was a deranged individual and ran his murder castle and the con, con man, man extraordinaire. Yeah. We know he traveled the world. So, I mean, Holmes is, is as good a, a candidate, candidate as, any. as anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to add on a little bit onto that. One of the things that Jeff Mudgett was trying to do was to get permission to dig up his great-great-grandfather, H.H. Holmes, uh, and possibly take some DNA. Now, you got to remember, this kind of goes back to that same time frame we were just talking about with the uh, possible DNA blood splatter on the uh, shaw or scarf as the story was coming forth. He did get, in the very last episode, I think there was eight episodes in that series, uh, American Ripper on the... 2017 History Channel documentary. In the last one, they actually exhumed the body. And the first thing they came across was as they were digging with the backhoe, they struck something very hard, like a concrete, large stone. And that was one of the rumors about H.H. H. Holmes was he possibly somehow managed to escape and wasn't even killed at yeah. that point, And there may be nothing buried there. So they immediately start thinking, well, this was put here to keep anybody from digging up and finding out that there is nobody buried here. As that kind of played out over the, the coming months after the show even ended, they did find out that it was a, you might as well say, a solid block of concrete. They did scanning and did find that there was a human skeletal remains inside, encompassed in this <laughs> entire block of concrete. With about 12 inches of concrete at, at any given point to reach said body. And of course, he was at this point really trying to get that DNA to prove that, you know, if the blood on the scarf was real and my great grandfather's blood, boom, here's the automatic, you know, hands down connection. Well, a few strange things really occurred out of that. One, it, it obviously showed that there was somebody buried there. They did do some DNA on it and did prove without a shadow of a doubt it is H.H. H. Holmes' body. And that he had requested that his body be encapsulated, if you will, to protect it for fear, I guess the family at that time more so, that people would dig it up and do some of the horrendous things to his body that he did to some of his victims, well, so to speak. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. But uh, after a tedious long project, they were able to chisel away enough concrete, get the DNA samples, and uh, to, to make that connection. So. While the DNA on the scarf deal, I, I don't remember the exact reasons. Like I said, I, I found one speculation that the scarf wasn't actually listed. I could find just as many that the scarf did exist. It's hard to say, but there wasn't ever that I came across any DNA that said, yes, we link this to that. I'll put it that way. But it did prove that he was buried there. H.H. H. Holmes was buried there. And Mudgett, you know, while he was a bit let down, he was still enthusiastic that he said it wasn't a loss. You know, I now know that he is buried here and we have that DNA. If anything new, there's, he, he believes there's some still missing pieces out there that'll come forward. And I mean, he stands firm that his great grandfather was in fact the two most probably brutal, well-remembered serial killers of all times. And the reason why it ended in Whitechapel was he escaped because of the heat of the police and came and started his yeah. atrocities at the Chicago World's Fair. And that gave him a chance to evolve and, as we talked about in our episode, design out this special 
hotel of murder and horrors with trap doors and slides and secret rooms and gas chambers and a burn furnace to, you know, to get rid of uh, bodies that he swore he did glass work in. And so this is a story that we may be talking another 135 years from now. Well, not personally us, but uh, the story will be talked about 135 years yeah, more. No, I mean, I hate to say it. I don't think I have that much. Time I left. don't think so. No, no, I don't. I, I don't have near that. But, <laughs> but this story is like an onion. There's just more and more and more layers. And then as you get down in it, you find a carrot. I mean, it's just insane. There's so much rumors and finger pointing and speculation and half truths. And it's, it's insane. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed uh, our take on one of the uh, older serial killer stories of our times, Jack the Ripper. Thanks for listening. I saw a TikTok video one time where it was like, what's this? they were at a radio station and the one, one of the people would just walk into a room, guy be in his office and she'd be like, what's Ginny's number? And, like, most people would just stare at her, like, what are you what? talking about? Who's, who's and then, of course, you know, they went in, and it was an older guy, like, you know, well, our, our age. And, like, what's Ginny's number? He's like, 8675309. So, I thought that was funny. Hold on right. just a moment. I do have another shout out. Oh, okay. I sent it to you, but you never replied the dude. Oh, I don't. Oh, yeah, I think you did. Well, Eric stepped out, so, again... You want to save me? Oh, no, he's back. Sorry. She had a seven-inch long wound extending from her left breast to her navel. The navel. Navel. Good Lord. Enabled the navel. <laughs> she had a seven-inch long wound extending. Now, like I said earlier, the vast majority of the city of police Lebanon, or city police, woo I was going to bring that back home. <laughs> the vast majority of the city of London police files relating to the investigation were the investigation. My God, I can't get through these sentences. What's hurt? A DNA forensic... Good. Bill, have you been drinking again? (laughs) (laughs) I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>